Well, good morning. Uh, we have been, my wife and I have been in the church here for about 16 months now. Uh, we actually live south of the river. Well, yeah. How, okay, how many of you have ever met somebody south of the river, from south of the river? Not very many of you. So we're getting used to North London. We're getting used to finding our way round. Uh, I'm still kind of getting a bit lost occasionally. Uh, for example, last week we were at Tom and Chloe Avery's for a meeting. And at the end of the evening, um, I came out into the, the corridor there, put my shoes on and my coat, my scarf on, and tried to get out of the flat through the cupboard door. <laughs> And I had Steph Liston behind me laughing at me and making all sorts of quips about Narnia and that sort of thing. Uh, to be fair, the cupboard door was here and the front door was here, so it was an easy mistake to make. Probably wasn't really, because it was uh, obvious the front door was the front door. So, still getting used to North London. Um, in the south, the other side of the river, we have um, something called Waitrose. Any, anybody heard of Waitrose? Um, a, few years, a few years ago, something went onto the internet called Overheard in Waitrose. Here's an example. Darling, do we need Parmesan for both houses? <laughs> and another one. Let's go on to the next one. Since they started to offer free coffee, it's been like a soup kitchen in here. <laughs> Here's some more. Mummy, will we have to uh, sell some of the holiday homes now we've left the EU? <laughs> Which Land Rover did you take? I'd have a breakdown, but I've got a facial booked at 2pm. <laughs> and finally, overheard in Lidl today in London, on the phone. Won't be long, I'm just in Waitrose. Let me tell you about something I overheard in Waitrose about three weeks ago. I was there very first thing in the morning, and the shop was quite empty, and I walked through looking for a couple of bits, and as I walked through the store, I could hear this familiar tune. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. And that's what I started doing. I was sort of humming along because I had to hear this tune. I thought, oh, that's uh, hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns. I thought, somebody's worshipping in Waitrose. That's amazing. So as I got closer to the bread's aisle, there was this lady just on her knees stacking the shelves. And she's singing. She's not singing the words, just singing the tune. And I noticed that as she's singing the tune, a couple of her colleagues... Uh, just walked past her and greeted her, and they were obviously very warm towards her, and she warmly greeted them and carried on worshipping. And as I got to the bread aisle, I just said to her, oh, you're worshipping the Lord then? And she said, oh, yes. I said, it's a really lovely song, isn't it? And we had this quick exchange. But do you know that moment in Waitrose at the beginning of that day, the fact that she was worshipping there just transformed the beginning of my day. I thought in that big store, there was one lady that was just simply worshipping the Lord, bringing something of the presence of God into that place. 
and it just changed everything for me that day. Just it set the day up in a, in a very different way. I'll come back to that story later on because I want to uh, relate something to it. Um, but we're going to be looking today at Luke chapter 21, which is a chapter about the end times and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So it's going to be a fun sermon. Steph said, can you preach on Luke 21? And I looked at it and thought, oh, that's really nice of you to ask me to preach on that. Uh, I preached a whole series on the equivalent passage in Mark 13 some years ago. So I'm going to try and fit a lot into a short space of time today. But uh, it won't be, you know, hours and hours long. Let me give you the context, first of all. We're looking at the events leading up to the, the cross and uh, just a few days before, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem to great acclaim from the ordinary people. He came into the city day after day to teach about judgment and the end times. And now he's spending time in the courts teaching the people. But every day he's going out from the, the city to a place called Bethany. And there was this growing expectation that Jesus was going to declare himself as the Messiah, that he would overthrow the Romans, that he would raise up an army, that he would establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. And Jesus was growing increasingly popular with the ordinary people, but increasingly unpopular with the religious leaders. And as Steph was saying last Sunday, there was this growing tension which ultimately led to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. Now, in the parallel passages in Mark uh, 13 and Matthew 24, we learn that Jesus and his disciples had left the temple for the last time, and they'd climbed up to the top of the Mount of Olives, and they're looking down on the city of Jerusalem and on the temple which would have dominated that city. So that's the scene. That's where they are. But it's important before we get into the text to understand that there are two major themes being interwoven here throughout the chapter. First of all, Jesus is talking about the end times and his return, and that's being interwoven with the idea that this temple will be destroyed one day. And so Jesus flows in and out of these two themes and it is quite confusing because you're not sure whether he's talking about the temple or whether he's talking about the end times. So I just need to uh, put that in, in front of you first of all. This is the sort of timeline in Luke 21. Uh, there are things that are going to happen in the disciples' lifetime. Persecution and the destruction of the temple which happened in AD 70. But Jesus is also talking about the future, the end times when he'll return, which is somewhere beyond 2019 where we are now. I guess that most of us have seen pictures like this one. Our perception of distance can be strange. So you've got the big hand and you've got the small Eiffel Tower, but all of us know that the Eiffel Tower is somewhat bigger than the hand. And uh, really what's happening in Luke 21 here is that we're seeing different things. We're seeing some things which are close up, but not as big as the thing which is much more distant, which is the return of Christ. And the two things are moving backwards and forwards like that all the time. The destruction of the temple will foreshadow uh, what will happen in the future. And so the events surrounding the destruction of the temple are going to be similar to the events that surround Jesus' return and the end times. 
And so this whole chapter moves backwards and forwards like this all the time. And so I, I thought the best thing to do today would be to work through the passage uh, two or three verses at a time and comment on those verses so that we don't get too confused as to where we are in, any, in the terms of the time frame. So Luke 21, verse 5 and 6, let's start there. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another, every one of them will be thrown down. So Jesus says that they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, they're looking at this temple, which is an enormous, magnificent building, and the disciples are impressed with the stones. This is why they're impressed with the stones. The historian Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, said that some of the stones were around 37 feet long by 12 feet high and by 18 feet wide. Imagine a double-decker bus laying on its side. That was the size of some of those stones. Now, these guys had come from rural areas in Galilee, and, and they hadn't seen big buildings at all, particularly. And then they come to Jerusalem, and they see this enormous structure, which took up about a sixth of the whole city. Uh, and Herod, King Herod, had built this temple, uh, I think probably to his own glory, rather than to the glory of God. But it stretched an enormous distance uh, through the city, and they're looking at it. They're looking at these great stones. And so they're impressed with the temple. Uh, the temple had an effect on people. It was a place of power. It represented the heart of the nation. But more than anything else, it represented the very presence of God. Then verse 7, they asked Jesus a question. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? In other words, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Now, what's happening here is that the disciples are assuming uh, that the temple being destroyed and the end times will come at one and the, and the same time. They will happen at the same time. Uh, but for them, as Jews, they can't imagine of anything, anything worse than the temple being destroyed. And so, because that's the most awful thing that they could ever imagine, that must equate to the end times. That must be the end of the world. One commentator, uh, George Eldon Ladd, says this. He says, There can be little doubt, but that the disciples thought of the destruction of the temple as one of the events accompanying the end of the age and the coming of the eschatological kingdom of God. Eschatological just means end times. Claire will interpret that for the folks over here. Uh, well done, Claire. Uh, so, but these two events turned out to be totally separate. There was the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Uh, the end times are yet to happen. But for the disciples, they assumed that they were all uh, meshed together. So in answering their question in verse 7, Jesus, confusingly, doesn't start with the temple in AD 70, but he goes right through to the end times. So he starts talking about the end times. So in verse 8, he says... Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. 
When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. So Jesus is saying before the end comes, there's going to be lots of people that claim to be the Messiah. Uh, Just this century, since the beginning of this century, 2000, there's been at least five people that have claimed to be the Messiah. Uh, There always will be people that claim to be the Messiah. But what Jesus is saying in this chapter is that, listen, nobody could possibly miss my return. This is something which is going to be so totally... uh, involved right around the globe, right around the world. Nobody will be able to miss it. You can't have somebody just turn up somewhere in in Balaam or something and say, I'm the Messiah. It's not going to be like that. I'm coming uh, in all my glory and all my power, and that's how it's going to be. So you won't miss it. Uh, But he also talks about the persecution that his followers will have to face around that time. So verse 12 he moves back again to more like their present time. So he's, he's saying there's going to be persecution in the future, but there'll also be persecution now for you as my followers. So verse 12. But before all this, before the end times, they will seize and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you defend yourselves. For I will give you the words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Now we know from the book of Acts that these same disciples faced governors and religious authorities and kings and that God gave them the words as they needed them. The Holy Spirit gave them the words, for example, in Acts 4 verse 13 where Peter and John were speaking to the Sanhedrin and they noted that they were uneducated men, unschooled men, and they were impressed with what they were saying. So we know that happens, and in Paul's life as well. How do we square verse 16 and verse 18? Because verse 16 says that some of you will be put to death, and then verse 18 says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Well, Jesus is referring to the spiritual reality here. That ultimately, whatever his disciples go through, whether they survive or whether they get martyred, uh, they will not suffer spiritual loss. Their spiritual inheritance will remain secure. So he's reassuring them. Then Jesus goes on to answer the question about the temple. So he's coming back to AD 70 now. Verse uh, Verse 20 says, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. 
and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that's been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be, a great, will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what he's talking about is going to happen within maybe 40 years. This is kind of early AD 30s, that sort of time. By the time we get to AD 70, most of the people listening to him were still going to be alive. The, what was going to happen then was that the Romans were going to come and surround Jerusalem. They surrounded Jerusalem, besieged it, and eventually they tore it down, brick by brick, stone by stone. Everything that they were looking at in that city from the Mount of Olives was just going to be flattened uh, within 40 years. And so what, that's what the Romans did in those days. They would uh, conquer an area. They'd take all the stones away. M- many of those stones went back to Rome so they could build their monuments in Rome. But essentially, it was going to be completely flattened. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And that event and the horror of that event, you know, you don't want to be in Jerusalem, Jesus says, when that's happening. You want to escape to the countryside. The horror of that is going to be reflected in the end times when Jesus, just before Jesus returns. And so the the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple foreshadows what's going to happen in the, the future when Jesus returns. That's what he's saying. He's comparing these two things. Now, what does he mean by the times of the Gentiles there in verse 24? What he's meaning there is that it's an age in which the non-Jews, the Gentiles, are given opportunities to receive the gospel. I guess most of us in this room are non-Jews, but we have an opportunity to receive the gospel. We are still in that time. Uh, There are many non-Jews living in Jerusalem even today, of course, And so we are still in that that season. What the disciples didn't quite understand right then, in that moment, was that the need for the temple was going to disappear. Uh, The temple was a place of sacrifice, but as soon as Jesus died on the cross, he did away with that need for a place for sacrifice, because he is the perfect sacrifice. The moment he died on the cross, uh, there wouldn't need to be any more animal sacrifices. Uh, The curtain was going to be torn from top to bottom, if you remember, in the Gospels. The moment he dies on the cross, the curtain within the temple, between what represented the presence of God and the ordinary people, was going to be torn apart. And so everybody has access now to uh, God himself There isn't a barrier any longer between a man and God, between people and God. It's been removed forever. From that point onwards, every believer would have access to God. And the people of God become the new temple. The people of God become the place where the presence of God dwells. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? So they're looking at this magnificent, incredible building, massive building. Uh, Jesus is telling that's all going to go within a few years. 
but actually its use and its purpose was going to disappear the moment he died on the cross. It was going to be redundant from that moment onwards. There's no longer a need for a temple. But there is this far greater structure called the church. It's not a building, but it's where God's presence resides in millions of spirit-filled people of all generations and of all nations, worshipping him. Now, let me return to the story I started with about the lady worshipping in Waitrose. She was bringing something of the presence of God into that store. Uh, In a sense, she was representing the temple of God. She was uh, worshipping and enjoying the presence of God in that place. So believers of the new temple, uh, wherever we go, we bring something, in a small way, we bring something of the presence of God Uh, and we take the presence of God with us. We are the new temple. Um, I work part-time for Revelation Church as an operations manager doing admin and doing some leadership stuff as well. Uh, So three days a week. But the other two days I work for Bromley Adult Education College and I teach English as a second language. So I have a group of 13 students there from all different nations, and I try to teach them some English. And uh, before they arrive, I usually get there pretty early, and I sort the room out. And as I'm sorting out the desks and opening blinds and putting on the projector and uh, putting on the computer and all that sort of thing, getting all my notes ready, I'm praying. Uh, And I just pray for the, the Holy Spirit to come into that place. I pray for good relationships between the students I pray for peace in that classroom. I pray that God would help me to teach them something. Uh, I pray that God would help them to learn something from me. I just pray for the presence of God to come in that place. And in a small way, but in a very real way, I'm bringing something of the presence of God into that situation. We don't need the temple in quite the same way as they did. Wherever we work, wherever we study, wherever we are, meeting people in the, in the playground, meeting our neighbours, we are bringing something of God's presence into those people's lives. So I want to encourage you to think in that way. I'm sure that many of us do that. We pray about the jobs that we do and so on. But we are like the lady in Waitrose. We are bringing something of uh, the presence of God into that place. And then in verse 25 in this passage, Jesus switches again to the end times and his return. And he says, look, there'll be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So Jesus says that there are signs which lead up to the end uh, of the the age. 
Uh, and as believers, we shouldn't be surprised. He said, you can see the signs. You see them in the trees for the different seasons. Uh, and he says, you'll know when I'm about to return. But the manner of his return will be great and powerful and glorious. And absolutely everybody in the entire world will know that Jesus is returning. I don't know how that's going to work if you live in Australia and Jesus is returning to Jerusalem, for example. You know, sort of how... But we live in a global village now, don't we? So communication of these things would go around pretty fast. But there will be enormous signs in the heavens. Now, on December the 28th, just at the end of last year, uh, there was an explosion. We'll see a picture of it in a moment. At an electrical power station in New York City. There it is. It lit up the sky, turned the sky an eerie blue, and the event triggered a flurry of speculation on social media. Some people wondered if aliens had landed. Others thought something supernatural might be to blame for the ghostly glow. Others wondered whether the hand of God was at work over New York, heralding perhaps a new pope, or the moment when true believers would be swept up or raptured to heaven and Jesus would return. The New York Police Department took to Twitter to reassure the public that the strange light was caused by something much more down-to-earth, a transformer explosion at a power station in the borough of Queens. You know, when Jesus returns, it won't be a few thousand people on the edge of New York that will sort of think, oh, maybe there's something happening. The whole world will know about it. It will be enormous, indescribable. There are plenty of ideas about how Jesus will return and when Jesus will return and what that will look like. I haven't got time to unpack all of those ideas this morning. We'd be here forever. Uh, but he will return. He, that's what the passage is telling us, isn't it? He will return. In verse 32, he says, This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, what did he mean there? Well, there's different interpretations and ideas of what he meant there, so you have to sort of take your pick. Some people think he might have been referring back to the temple and saying this generation won't disappear until they've seen the destruction of Jerusalem. Other people think he's referring to the generation that will be on the earth at the time he returns. Some say he's saying both, and he's sort of mixing them up. Take your pick. Uh, but from verse 34 onwards, we get to the so what moment. He's telling us all this stuff about the end times and Jerusalem, all the rest of it. So what? When he says, verse 34, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. But always on the watch, be always on the watch, and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching in the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. So Jesus is saying here, You've got to be ready. Be careful you don't get weighed down with anxiety. He's saying, watch and pray. And he's just encouraging us to be ready for his return. Um, so, you know, people, people deal with 
anxieties in different ways. You know, some, some people want to block out the things they're worried about, and so they go out partying, um, they go out and get drunk because they don't want to face the realities of what's, what's ahead, what's in the future, what happens when I die? You know, where am I going? You know, what's my destiny? What's my eternal destiny? And so people make their lives incredibly busy. Uh, they fill their lives with all sorts of things. They do all sorts of stuff, traveling and uh, um, hobbies and all sorts of things. Not necessarily bad things, but they just fill their lives with lots of things. Partying, drunkenness, not such a good thing. But they're just trying to block out the, the possible, you know, what's going to be there in the future. Um, and so Jesus is saying, look, don't, don't fill your life with all these things and never get to the point where you're thinking about your eternal destiny. And some people do that. Other people just get so anxious and caught up with the everyday stuff in their lives that they just um, they can't even think beyond next week. They can't think about their eternal destiny. And Jesus is saying, you've got to think about these things, these, these big questions about life. And uh, I would want to urge all of us, whether you're a believer or not a believer, to be ready for the return of Christ. But I would want to urge you even more, if you're not a believer yet, if you've not put your trust in Jesus and not accepted his free gift of salvation, to do that because he could return at any time. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, he's not going to return in my lifetime. And you might be right, but one way or another, you're going to face him. You know, the moment you die, you're going to come face to face with him. Or you're going to come face to face with him when he returns in all his glory, but you will be in front of him. And at that point, at that point in time, there's going to be a judgment. There's going to be accountability. And so we need to get right with him before that moment comes. Now, you know, when you're in your 20s, 30s, you might think you're going to live forever. Uh, as you get older, you think, maybe I won't live forever. I, I'm always amazed as a pastor, I've been a pastor for many years, always amazed at how people manage to kid themselves that they're going to live forever. And then they get to the, you know, I've done funerals and people sort of almost like surprised that somebody's died. You know, you think, that's how it is. You know, we live, we die. That's how it is. Don't be ridiculous. You know, don't be silly. Uh, but people put these things off constantly. And Jesus is saying, be ready. Uh, my wife, um, Kathy, when she was a teenager, she thought, I need to become a Christian. Um, but she was only about 15, I think, at the time. Thought, well, I'll become a Christian when I'm old, when I'm 30, you know, when I get to that sort of stage of life, you know. Because I want to enjoy myself. By the time I get to 30, I'll be so old, I won't be able to do anything anyway. So I'll become a Christian when I'm 30. And of course, and that's how some of us live. We think, oh, I'll put it off, you know, thinking about these big decisions and about life and eternity until I'm 30, when I'm really old. And when you get to 30, you find you're so busy with um, kids and career and everything else, you know, trying to get a house and combination sorted out. I'll put it off till I retire. And then when you get to retirement, you're too tired to think about anything or you're too ill or whatever. People just keep putting these things off. Jesus is saying, no, be ready. Be ready for my return or be ready for the moment when you've got to face me. Um, in the college where I work, uh, last term, when I started in October, uh, just after I started, I heard that, that we were due to have an Ofsted inspection. They didn't tell me that when I, they interviewed me, but they, they told me after I started. And so all our managers are a bit sort of worried about this Ofsted inspection. And every week, the manager was saying, if I, I'll get a, an email by Friday lunchtime, which will tell us that the Ofsted inspector is coming the next week. 
And uh, every week we'd get to the Friday and there was no email, but she was worried about, you know, so we had to get all the paperwork in place to make sure everything, there were lots of worried managers kind of making sure we got everything in place because the Austin inspector is coming. This lady is coming, she said. And we went all the way through the term, got all the way through to Christmas and the inspector never arrived. And you could have been lulled into, into this sort of sense of, well, I don't think they're ever going to come. You know, they're not that bothered. They've got other things to do. But we got to the first week in January, and on the first Friday, the email came. Next week, it's happening. The Ofsted inspector was coming. And there were a flurry of emails across the weekend, everybody sort of making sure they've got all their notes in place and all their paperwork right. And the inspector came. And she, she sat in on a couple of my classes, and she did the inspection. And apparently it went, it went well, which is great. But we were ready. We were ready, even though it felt like she might not come, but she did come. And it's the same. Jesus is returning. He's definitely coming back. We definitely need to be ready. Do not uh, just sort of ease back and think, oh, I'll, I'll think about it another time. You might be on your deathbed before you're really thinking about it, and then it may be too late. He's coming. Be ready. Watch and pray, believers. Watch the signs. See what's happening around in the world. Uh, we're not called to hide ourselves away in some sort of co- community where we don't know what's going on out there. Let's be part of the world, in it but not of it. And then thirdly, to go back to what I was saying at the beginning, we are the temple of God and we carry something of the presence of God into the world in our everyday lives. Let's continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit, ongoingly filled with the Holy Spirit, so that we can make an impact on those around us. Let's pray together. Lord, we um, just thank you that you are returning one day. And just as you predicted totally accurately that the temple would be destroyed, which was a, a thing that those disciples might have thought, that could never happen, it happened. And you are saying, I'm going to return one day. And we might sit here uh, thinking, oh, it's never going to happen. It's not how it's going to happen. It's going to happen because you've spoken it. And you are the truth. Lord, we thank you so much that you're coming back to gather your people, uh, to establish your kingdom. uh, But we want to be ready. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us, whether whether we're believers or especially if we're not believers yet, that we would be ready for that moment. And Lord, we thank you that you uh, have given us a way through uh, because of what you've done on the cross. Lord, we don't have to uh, change our lives substantially to try and be good because you've done it all for us. We thank you, Lord, that we only have to uh, put our faith in you and believe in you. Thank you that it's all because of of what you've done for us. It's all because of grace, and we just have to put our faith in you. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to face a judgment in a negative sense, but we, we will face an assessment as people that have believed in you and have worshipped you, and have come close to you regularly, and thanked you again and again that we are sinners saved by grace. Lord, we thank you. We pray too that you would continuously help us to be filled with the Spirit, so that we might uh, touch people in our everyday lives with something of the presence of God, and be like the temple uh, to them as we go through our daily lives. Thank you, Lord. Amen.